0: Alright, you will recall, I don't know exactly where I was at, but I'll just kind of start here. You will recall that we find ourselves at yet another uh, turning point. You recall that in chapter 1, Paul had given a 50,000 foot view of how God is working to redeem mankind. Now you may remember in, in the teaching that sin began in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve rebelled against their Creator. Thus sin was a worldwide problem which required a worldwide solution. You may also recall that as we studied this we began this book of Ephesians, you may also recall that God's solution was to send his own son who has redeemed his people from their sins. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. After he saved us, he sent his spirit as a pledge to our full redemption as God's own possession. Now in our study, we found that this was all done to the glory of God in Christ, who has been raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. He has been seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And in chapter 2, we found that these truths powerfully, powerfully intersected with us. Despite having been dead in our sins and trespasses, we were made alive. In Christ, we have also been raised up and seated with him in the heavenlies. He has saved us by his grace through faith. Here's what's amazing. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And he also placed us into the body of Christ. He made us a new creation in Christ. He has made us one in Christ. Now what I want you to understand is is that these are the truths on which Paul based everything. Paul based everything on this. I've titled this sermon, as I mentioned earlier, Something to Die For. You see in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapters 1 and 2, Paul... Was willing and su- to willing to suffer and die for his Lord for the truths that he has written in them, in those chapters of it. And not only that, he calls us to do the same. He calls us. He calls the church to be willing to suffer and die for the, the truths that are found in chapter one and chapter two. You see, Paul understood that God sovereignly calls of all, each of us to be sold out for. For him. Now, the first point is he calls us to be set, sold out for the sake of his service. Now, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 1, that is. It says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, what we want to understand here is, is that Paul, before Christ, Paul, who was known as Saul, was on top of his world. I don't think that we can fully comprehend what it meant for him to arrive at that place in his life. In his own words, many years later, he says this in Philippians 3, 5, and 6, he says, He was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. I guess it would be like a young doctor who arrives at the pinnacle of his profession and becomes known for some radical cure for cancer or some heart condition or like a young man who dreams of becoming a CEO and battles his way to the top by the time he's 35. That's where Paul was at. We all know that there are certain a certain number of things that we have to forsake in order to climb to those places paul was willing to forsake everything he was willing to do what it took to be in the place that he was at i'll never forget talking to a young man one time with aspirations of becoming an executive in our company he had a wife and a young child and he realized what he would need to give up to get to the top i could sense a sadness and and i could sense an excitement the excitement comes from the potential of making it to the top but the sadness comes from what it takes to what you have to give up to get there you see, Paul went through all of that. He had climbed to the top of his life. Saul had given his all to be where he was in life, and, and he was even there when Stephen was stoned uh, for preaching against Moses. You see, in, Paul, in Saul's mind at the time, Saul, Saul deserved, or Stephen deserved it. Stephen deserved what, what he got. He was preaching against everything that Saul had lived for, everything that Saul had longed for. He was, as the scriptures say, he was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death for his blasphemies. Acts 8, one. there's a haunting line. In Acts 8, one. it says this, On that day a great persecution occurred against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. One can't imagine how confusing and terrifying it must have been for the Christians who were involved. And do you realize who was standing at the very epicenter of all this upheaval? Saul. Saul, who we also know as the Apostle Paul. In Acts. The text says he was ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women who he would put in prison. Brethren, Saul had the blood of martyrs on his hands. In his own words, he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. though he was shown mercy by god because he acted in unbelief he never forgot the horrific nature of his actions again in his own words he says this in 1 timothy 1 15 he says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners but he doesn't stop there he says among whom i am foremost of all And in verse 16, he says, yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe him for eternal life. That is a profound statement. That Christ would, in him, as the foremost, that Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe. Brethren, to understand Paul's heart for Christ and the church, we must understand why he went from a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor to an absolute champion for Christ and his church and the gospel. I've heard it said, maybe you have too, that Paul holds the key to the mystery of the church. Therefore, we must understand him and his heart to understand the church. We must understand him and his heart for Christ. We must then understand the events that shaped him. Now, as I said, we've arrived at Ephesians chapter 3, and at this point in the letter, the, the Apostle Paul wants his readers, he needs his readers to understand his heart for them. He understood that they don't get him; they certainly aren't going to get his message. Now, it's this chapter I, up front. I want to tell you that it's intensely personal. It's incredibly personal. He he has a, a heart for the Ephesians. He has a heart for the church, and you can even see it in the structure in this letter. Notice in verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, in your Bible, I know in my Bible, there's a dash there. It stops. It stops. At this point, there is a major break in thought. You might, it's a its a parenthetical thought. As I said, in the ESV and the New King James Version and in the New American Standard Version, all three place a dash there to depict this parenthetical thought. You see, Paul has given his life, literally given his life for their sake. He has suffered for their sake. In other words, he has been imprisoned for the sake of the Gospels. Specifically, he's been imprisoned by Christ. I'll stop for a second and let that again he's been imprisoned by christ for the sake of the gentiles now notice down in verse 14 he says for this reason i bow my knees to the father so basically what's happening here is that he says for this reason i Paul, the prisoner of christ jesus for the sake of you gentiles stop then he adds a parenthetical thought And he picks back up on the thought in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Therefore, verses 2 through 13 become this parenthetical thought where Paul teaches them concerning the nature of his ministry. He wants them to understand. He wants them to understand why he's saying what he's saying. He wants them to understand how he has lived the truth of the gospel. See, Paul knew and understood the pivotal nature of his role. His role was a a pivotal role. You know, every every organization has what's called a pivotal role. It's a role which affects the success of the organization. Some of you love Disney. At Disneyland and Disney World, which group do you think would be the most pivotal? Pivotal. The actors who play the Disney characters or the street sweepers? Well, it just so happens that it's the street sweepers. It turns out that the street sweepers, because the, of, of the expectation, expectation of cleanliness and overall organization of Disney, the street sweepers and their job is what you actually remember by going to Disney. It's a little different with the church. You may expect that the preacher has the pivotal role in the church. And that would be true, you'd be correct. But the, the outworking of good preaching will always result in soft-hearted people who desire to serve God and one another. I would say, then, that the pivotal role is the preaching of the Word, but the effectiveness of the preaching is shown in the other roles, such as the hospitality of the church. in, in the church. You can preach the truth, in other words, and build knowledge, but people will become a sticky church a church that retains people when members exhibit a heart to love and serve one another. And that is that is a direct result of the preaching. Now let me tie that back to Paul. Beloved, Paul has been given the responsibility to preach the truths of the gospel to the Gentiles. This role was pivotal, pivotal to the formation and growth of the early church and has profound implications even to our day. Like the pastor teacher today, Paul was tasked with encouraging the the church to suffer and die for the truths of the gospel. But this task, his responsibility, had cost him everything in this world. He had been given a glimpse of what his preaching would come to. He had already begun to suffer, but he knew that he would eventually die for it. But not only that, his job, was to convince the church that they are to also suffer and die for the truths of the gospel. That's what made his role so pivotal. Let me just say this, though. The reason why Paul was so willing to do so, the reason why Paul was so willing to suffer and die is because he had been given a glimpse of his glorified Savior. He had been given a glimpse of the world to come. Therefore, he knew that any amount of suffering was worth it. That's why he says in Philippians 121, he says this, For for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, that captures the heart of Paul's ministry and his outlook on life. And as such, I think what we're going to find is that these verses coming up in chapter 3 are some of the most personal verses in in all of the New Testament. Paul takes this opportunity, he takes this opportunity to plead with the church at Ephesus. He wanted them, he wanted to ensure that they would never give up. He knew what his life was coming to. He knew that he was facing death. He didn't know when, but he knew it was coming but he wanted them to go all the way for Christ. Said another way, he desired that they be willing to join him in suffering and dying for the sake of Christ and the gospel. So he starts out in one by saying, for this reason. This phrase refers to the body of truth which Paul has revealed to the church at Ephesus in the first two chapters. I briefly mentioned them in my introduction. According to Paul, these truths are worth suffering for. These truths are worth dying for. Now, I thought it would be good for us to try to better understand why Paul would suffer and die for these truths. And more than that, I I want you to understand why he thought the church should suffer and die for these same truths. We'll do so by looking at Paul understood that God sovereignly calls each of us to be sold out for the sake of his service. This truth can be illustrated again with Paul's life. Again, we pick up with Paul's story in Acts 6 where Stephen was brought before the council and before the council and accused of blasphemy. His response before the council was to give a passionate defense of the Christian faith from the Old Testament. And at the end of his sermon, he condemned the Jewish leaders for rejecting the Messiah. He, pointed, he, he gave pointed accusations which enraged them, therefore they stoned him to death. And as we saw earlier, at, at Paul was in hearty agreement with this killing. Now at that point, as we saw earlier, Saul was ruthlessly beginning to, to try to destroy the church. Yet this man who shed the blood of Christians would himself become a Christian and a martyr. Ironically, Paul's own blood would become the seed of the Gentile church. Think about that. So what changed in Paul? Well, Jesus of Nazareth is what changed. He miraculously appeared to him on the road to Damascus as he was traveling to persecute the church. He miraculously and sovereignly saved him and made him his servant. And what you need to understand is, is that appearance was a major turning point not only for Paul, but a major turning point for the church. In Acts one Jesus had promised, he said to his disciples that they would be his witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. You see, Jesus commissioned Paul then to begin the process of taking the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, you need to remember, we need to remember, that the church had originated in a very Jewish context. But Christ never intended the church to stay entirely Jewish. He always intended for the church to impact the entire world. He always intended for the gospel to be taken to the remotest parts of the world. In other words, sin, sin, our sin, is a mankind problem. Therefore, the solution was always intended to be one for all of mankind. So, Paul was chosen as his vessel to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, that may have been a curious choice, to take someone in Paul's position to take the gospel to the Gentiles, but when we look closer, it begins to make sense. You see, Paul, again, was a Hebrew of Hebrews, but he was also a Roman citizen. He was schooled under a Pharisee named Gamaliel. It's hard for me to get that out sometimes. But we also know that he became a persecutor of the church. When you put all these things together, when you put all these facts together, he becomes the perfect person for God to choose to take the gospel to the Gentiles. According to Acts chapter 9, he was on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus. Again, he was no friend of the church. He was a man to be feared. But Paul continued to persecute the church when Christ appeared to him and directly commissioned him. This encounter gave gave Paul's ministry validity. This meeting is the only explanation for Paul's complete change of heart and direction. The only way that Paul would have given up the life that he had, what we have to understand, let me back up and make sure we understand this. The only way that Paul would have ever given up the life that he had was that Jesus miraculously appeared to him and saved him. You see, Paul would have never changed. What was the reason for it? Paul would have never turned and and become what he was in Christ if Christ had not completely changed him. And that's the way salvation works with all of us. We don't change of our own free will, right? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead men don't decide to be raised from the dead. You see, Paul's conversion shaped his understanding of salvation. His salvation salvation should shape our understanding of our own salvation and our understanding of Paul's ministry. You see we may not have been saved in such a spectacular fashion, but our salvation is no less of a miracle. You may not have been given ministry in such a dramatic way, but your ministry is no less from the hand of God. You see Paul had come face to face with the glorified Christ. An encounter like that changes, changes a man, right? Meeting face to face with the glorified Savior is bound to make for profound changes in the life of a man. We saw it in the life of Moses, right? He changed when he approached the burning bush. Isaiah's life and ministry were never the same after his vision of God on the throne. You see, Paul's encounter with the Messiah on the road to Damascus completely changed him and his direction. And just like Moses and Isaiah, this encounter gave validity to Paul's life and his ministry. In Ephesians 3.1, Paul says this, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul was clearly a prisoner for the cause of Christ. He preached the gospel which caused great disturbances leading to his imprisonment. imprisonment. But we must recognize that Paul viewed his imprisonment differently he wasn't imprisoned by man he says he was the prisoner of christ jesus make no mistake paul viewed his self himself as the prisoner of christ paul recognized that none of this was of his doing christ had appeared to him on the road to damascus christ had commissioned him for ministry Christ had entrusted him with the message. Christ had made him his prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles. We have to trust what God has done in the life of Paul. Secondly here, Paul understood that that God sovereignly calls us causes to suffer and die for the sake of his people. Look at look at verse 3 verse or chapter 3 verse 1 again. Clearly Christ used Paul to take the gospel to the gentiles. He says that he was a prisoner of Christ for the sake of you gentiles. Now before we I want to give you a little bit of background. I want to we want to explore the the story of Paul's imprisonment. Before we go there, I want to give you some background to help you understand this. Now, we must understand that prior to the New Testament, no one foresaw the church. It was not mentioned in the Old Testament. The first mention of the church came in Matthew 16 as our Lord began his journey to the cross. So, why don't you turn there real quick to Matthew 16? Starting in verse 18, I want you to notice that Jesus told his his disciples that he, he told Peter specifically that he would build his church and that the gates of Hades would not overcome it. Now, he also told them that he would be killed and raised on the third day. Now, in Matthew 16, 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, that this shall ever happen to you. To which Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Now, we can't miss the context here. We can't miss the context here. Jesus revealed to his disciples that he would build his church and that he, Jesus, would suffer and die for it. In other words, he told them that he would purchase the church of God with his own blood. Clearly, the disciples didn't understand that Jesus needed to suffer and die for the sake of his church. They didn't realize that they they would also be called to suffer and die as well. Now here's the connection, and I think we, we tend to miss this connection. I want you to know, as I give you this, that that Matthew sixteen and seventeen are the most pivotal pivotal chapter chapters in the Bible to understanding the church's call to suffering. Look at verse 24. Now, this is just after just after Jesus had told them that he would build his church, and just after Jesus told him them that they would he would suffer and die at the hands of the of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and that he would be raised on the third day, and this is just after Peter had been rebuked and by, by Jesus and said or actually rebuked Jesus and then Jesus said get behind me Satan you are a stumbling block to me now right after that in 1624 it says this then Jesus said to his disciples if anyone wishes to come after me he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me <coughs> for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it In other words, Jesus wanted his disciples to know that not only would he die for the sake of his church and his people, but they would also be called to suffer and die for the sake of the church. We must recognize, then, that the common belief among the Jews was that the Messiah would come to deliver them from suffering to come and deliver them from their suffering. He would come and deliver them and and rule over the world. They understood the Messiah to be political. The idea of a suffering Messiah had not occurred to them. This was true even though Isaiah had prophesied that the Messiah would suffer. He would be oppressed and afflicted. He would be like a lamb that is led to slaughter. They completely missed that he would come to suffer for the sake of his people. And then Jesus challenges them this way in verse 26. He says this, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, Jesus wanted his disciples to recognize that his glory would come through suffering. His glory would come through suffering. Satan had offered Christ the kingdoms of the world during the temptations, right? He could have gained the whole world through this compromise. He could have called down legions of angels and to take it by force. Yet he trusted his Father's redemptive plan, which included his suffering and death. And here's the kicker. He demanded that his disciples do the same. He demands that we do the same. Then Jesus gives a glimpse of his future second coming in verse 27. He says this, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. In other words, Jesus wanted them to realize that His suffering and death would result in His ultimate glory. As such, as such, their suffering and death, for His sake, would also result in glory when He comes in glory. It's not an empty call. It's not an empty call. If we suffer... For the cause of Christ, he will repay everyone who has caused that suffering according to their deeds. If we suffer for the cause of Christ, he will avenge that suffering. And he will come in glory. Then Jesus says something that might be difficult to understand outside of this context. He says this, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until the Son of Man, they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So it seems that in verse 28, he's saying that, that this would be fulfilled, his coming and his kingdom would be fulfilled in his first coming, in his earthly ministry. But that wasn't his point. That wasn't Jesus' point at all. He had just told them that they would suffer and die for his sake. He also told him that their suffering and death would ultimately result in glory, but he didn't want to leave them with nothing to validate his words. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took him with him, Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. You see, what's happening here is this is the Son of God giving His disciples a glimpse of this glory to come. He's telling them that this is why you're going to suffer and die. These three men saw a brief glimpse of their future with Christ. After Moses and Elijah show up to talk to Jesus, Peter had the bright idea of building three tabernacles. And in verse 5, this is the response. And while Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So what we have here is the Father verified the words of Christ to be true. He would build his church. He would protect his church. And he would suffer and die for the sake of his church. And by the way, the disciples would be called to do the same thing. They would be called, according to Matthew 16, 24, to take up their own crosses, their own instruments of death, and follow him. In verse 6, it says, When the disciples heard this, they fell down on the ground and were terrified. Now, it's interesting to note, this is all about Paul, right? It's interesting to note that the Apostle Paul wasn't present, right? He wasn't here. Obviously, he wouldn't be commissioned by the Lord for several more years. But here is the connection to Paul. In Acts chapter 9, as he was traveling to Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city city, and I and it will be told you what you must do. You see, Jesus, or Paul, that is, saw a vision of the risen Lord. He saw the glory of the Lord. Don't you think that might change a man? I mean. Jesus sent him to Ananias, who was understandably concerned about Saul and his reputation. But the Lord said to him in, in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Then he says this in, in chapter 9, verse 16. You might want to mark it. He says this, For I will show him how much he must, what? Suffer. Suffer for my name's sake. Beloved, just like the other apostles, Paul was called to suffer. But unlike the others, he was called to suffer specifically for the sake of the Gentiles. He was called to teach the mystery of the church. He was called to teach the mystery of the church that the church would be made up not only of Jews, but also of Gentiles, of bond and free, male and female, of Greek and barbarian, that all mankind would be one in Jesus Christ. That was the mystery for which Paul would suffer and die. That is the mystery for which he calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And we should note that while he wrote this epistle, he was in prison. Now, it was a modified prison because it was a prison in his own home. He had rented a house in Rome, but he was a prison there chained to a Roman soldier. He was no less a prisoner than if he would have been in an actual jail, like we think of jail. And as by the time he wrote Ephesians, he had been a prisoner for full a full five years. A full five years. He had been a prisoner for two years in Caesarea, then in the trip to Rome, where he was in prison at the time, and up to five years he, there in, in Rome when he wrote this letter. And why was he imprisoned? Well, I've said generally for preaching the gospel but he was in prison because he was preaching specifically that you didn't have to keep the ceremonies of Moses anymore. You didn't have to keep the ceremonial law. He began to preach that you're free in Christ. He began to teach that you don't have to be a Jew to be one of God's people. And at the beginning of his public ministry, he pastored a church in a a city called Antioch, which was made up of Jews and Gentiles. Christ was clearly blessing his ministry, but not everyone understood. Not everyone understood that Gentiles were to be a part of the people of God. They didn't understand the, fully understand the inclusion of the Gentiles. We don't completely get it. We don't completely understand it. But they thought that the Gentiles needed to be proselytes to Judaism. They needed to convert to Judaism in order to be saved. They expected the Gentiles to be circumcised and to keep the ceremonial law. So they weren't trusting Paul. They weren't trusting Paul's ministry because it deviated from what they understood. And after some time in Antioch, where Christ gave Paul and the others their success in ministry, he called Paul and Barnabas out of the church, out of the church of Antioch to go plant churches in the Gentile world. But this caused great trouble, right? Paul began to fulfill Christ's call to take the the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth. By the time we get to Acts chapter 20, which records Paul's visit to the Ephesian elders, Paul was certain what would happen to him if he continued to preach the gospel. Turn quickly to Acts chapter 20. We'll finish up here. Starting in verse 18. We, we see here in verse 17, he was sent uh, He sent to Ephesus. He was in Miletus and he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And in verse 19, he says, serving, uh, he said, starting in 18, you yourselves know from the first day I, that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through what? Through the plots of the Jews. Now, we talked about that. We talked about why they didn't trust him and why they were coming down on him. And he says, I didn't shrink from declaring anything that was profitable, verse 20, and teaching, and solemnly, verse 21, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith uh, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, both to Jews and Greeks. And he says this in verse 22, And now, behold, Bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions will await me. So he knew going to Jerusalem, he knew, he didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but he knew that bonds and afflictions awaited him. He knew, he knew that this was what was going to happen. If he continued down this road, he knew, but he says in verse 22, he was bound by the Spirit. Had no other choice. Look at verse 25. And behold, and now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And then he warns them to be on guard because, because false teachers would, would arise. And, and he tells them to shepherd the church. And he says, he says in verse 30 that, that, that they would speak perverse things and that they would try to draw the, the, the disciples away. And he tells them in verse 31, be on alert. He's telling them, he's warning them what's going to happen when he leaves. He wants them to know what would happen and he wants them to be ready. Look at verse 36. When he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him and grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. Paul knew what was coming. He knew he was going to be in prison for the sake of the gospel and they were accompanying, accompanying him they were going with him to, to the ship now, starting in verse in chapter 21 it's interesting to note that he continued to be warned not to go there in verse in verse 4 chapter 21 verse 4 it says after looking up the disciples he, we stayed there 7 days and they kept telling Paul through the spirit not to step foot or not to set foot in Jerusalem. Verse 8, 21-8, eight, And they came to Caesarea, and a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and prophesied that Paul would be bound and delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. Verse 12, when, they, when we heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. In verse 14, since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. So Paul was going to Jerusalem and he knew that he was going to be arrested. He knew he was going to suffer for the sake of Christ. And the rest of chapter 21 gives the story of Paul's arrival in Jerusalem and his arrest for the sake of the Gentiles. He had actually been warmly received by James and the elders. He had brought a love offering from the Gentiles for the sake of the church at Jerusalem. He also had brought some Gentiles with him. And James and the other elders glorified the Lord and they gladly received him. But in chapter, in chapter 21, verse 20, it says this. They said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews, those who have believed and those who are jealous, or zealous, that is, for the law. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. They're stirring up trouble. They were accusing Paul of teaching the Jews to forsake Moses, telling them not to observe the ceremonial law. And ultimately, they were true. that was true. Paul, Paul did tell them not to because they were free in Christ. Remember chapter 2 of Ephesians? Paul told the Ephesians that Christ had abolished in his flesh the enmity which is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances. The point is, is that the law had been abolished. The ceremonial... Law of Moses, not some moral law, had been abolished at the cross. Jew and Gentile had been reconciled at the cross. And it was Paul who stood at the, in the breach. But the Jews didn't understand this. They thought that Paul was preaching against Moses. Irony of ironies, right? What was Stephen persecuted for? What was Stephen stoned to death for? Preaching against the law of Moses. Who was there? Paul. Now he's doing the same. He's being accused of doing the same. What changed? He saw the glory of Christ. He saw the glory of Christ. See, Paul then went into the temple, but some Jews accused him of defiling the temple by bringing a Gentile into the temple. That's verse 29. See, the the elders of the people of of the church had had told Paul to try to appease them by showing that he himself lived an orderly life and kept the law so that he purified himself and readied himself to go into the temple. But they accused him of taking a Gentile there, verse 29, and he was arrested because of the disturbance and he was given into the hand of the Romans. Now, there's a lot more detail there that I will leave to you, but this led to his imprisonment for the sake of the Gentiles. Who was he imprisoned? Who imprisoned him? The Romans? No. Christ. So the result of all this. He is a prisoner until the time of the writing of Ephesians. Five years later, he's still a prisoner for this incident in Jerusalem. By this time, as I said, he's in Rome, and he's awaiting his prosecutors to come with their charges against him. But the reason he was a prisoner was because of the very mystery. Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. Paul believed. Paul believed in the unity of the Jew and Gentile in church. He believed it because Christ appeared to him and commanded him to preach it. He preached the message even though he was imprisoned for it. He preached it even though he suffered for it. And beloved, he would preach the message even in the face of certain death. I want you. Trust Christ. I also want you to trust Paul. You know why we can trust Paul? Look at his life. His life. Hebrew of Hebrews. Pharisee. Persecutor of the church. Christ appears to him. Christ appears to him. He sees the glory of Christ. Christ calls Paul to suffer for him. You see Paul, the apostle. Paul, the one who preaches the mystery of the church. Jew and Gentile together. Beloved, my job is to teach you. My duty is to shepherd you. As your pastor, I've been given the task to help you live in wisdom. I've also been given the responsibility to convince you of the truths which are worth suffering and dying for. I must follow then the direction, the life and the words of our Lord. You see in Luke 9, 51, just after the events of Matthew 16 and 17, it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. You know why he went there? he went there to suffer and die he lived his life his entire life he lived in anticipation for that very moment he had told his disciples what would be required of them and he followed through on every step he walked every step to the place where the cross stood he willingly allowed himself To be nailed to that cross of wood. Remember, he could have called down legions of angels. He didn't have to suffer. He didn't have to die. Except it was the will of the Father. He did it willingly. He died for you and for me. He died for the glory that it would bring. Beloved, According to Acts chapter 3, the Apostle Paul was also willing to suffer and die for his Savior. He took up his cross and he followed Christ. He took up the instrument of his own death. And he did so without wavering. He taught that we must be willing to suffer and die for the sake of serving Christ. He preached that we must be willing to suffer and die for the sake of God's people, the church. We live comfortable lives here in America, right? We live easy lives. The, the, the hardest that we live is easy compared to most of the world, for sure. It's very difficult for us to imagine It's very difficult for us to imagine the call, the willingness to suffer and die for the sake of Christ. But that is no less the call today. It's no less the call today to be willing to lay it all down for the sake of our King. I guess the question is, do you believe the gospel, The truths of the gospel are something to die for. I do. I do. I believe it's worth suffering and dying because I believe that those who wrote these words, the words of Scripture, the words of the New Testament, truly did see the risen Savior. Truly it is. I saw the glorified Lord and they were willing to suffer and die. And so should we. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we praise you. that You have sent your Son, your only Son, die on the cross, to willingly suffer your wrath, and you call us, your disciples, your people, to take up our cross and follow you. You call us to suffer. You call us to follow you no matter what. Lord, I don't miss the irony of calling people who live in comfort to suffer and die. Father, I pray that we as a church would understand the glorious truth of the gospel and be willing to give it all For your glory, in Christ's name.